This is the Peaceful Streets Podcast. We are recording here live at Brave New Books, 1904 Guadalupe Street. It's August 16th, the day before the big police accountability summit. We're expecting a huge crowd, maybe 500 plus. Uh, Essentially, the event is hoping to inspire people to understand their rights, stand up for their rights, and stand up for the rights of others. Uh, This is going to be the second annual summit we put one on last year. That was a huge success. We handed out over 100 video cameras. Lots of people were inspired. A lot of great speakers. We went out and did a cop watch with about 40 people afterwards, which was exciting. This year, we're pulling out all the stops, and uh, this year, PSP's going national. We got chapter heads from across the country, including Sandusky, Ohio, uh, for the Peaceful Streets Project. We got cop block activists flying in from all over. We have uh, one of the headliners, Bobby Seal, co-founder, uh, founding chairman and national organizer of the Black Panther Party, which has been doing cop watch, uh, you know, really started the art back in the day. They were doing armed cop watches, actually. Uh, Things were very different back then, but the oppression and struggle still continues. It's a totally different game with the technology and the militarization of the police, as we'll be chatting with our guest, uh, Radley Balco. He's also headlining the Peaceful Streets Summit. Again, it's August 17th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., uh, Radley Balco is a journalist with the Huffington Post, covering uh, police abuse and uh, the growth of the police state, militarization of the police state, doing the raid a day about uh, raids that are taking place all across the country, really destroying people's lives. And he has a book out right now uh, called Rise of the Warrior Cop uh, that's really doing well and doing great to get the message out there about how exactly law enforcement has changed over the years. Uh, but in essence, it's really stayed the same. Uh, and we're going to be chatting with Radley right now. Radley joins us. Radley Balco, how are you doing? Uh, I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate you coming out uh, to Austin to participate in the summit. Uh, maybe we could just start by asking you how you got involved in the fight against police abuse. Um, wow, I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, I was working for the Cato Institute as a policy analyst uh, covering civil liberties, and uh, I guess I was... <clears throat> Uh, part of that was the drug war, and I kept reading these accounts of uh, botched uh, drug raids mm-hmm. uh, where the cops, you know, hit the wrong house. And, you know, inevitably you'd read this article, and at the very end you'd hear a police spokesman say, um, you know, this almost never happens. This is an <laughs> isolated incident. And you read enough articles about uh, isolated incidents, and you start to wonder how isolated they actually are. Sure. Uh, so I started doing a little more research and uh, ended up writing a white paper for Cato uh, that went over really well. Continued to cover the issue for a while, uh, writing about specific cases, uh, you know, specific people who had been killed in these raids or who had uh, shot at police officers, mistaking mm-hmm. them for criminal intruders, uh, getting arrested and charged. Uh, and uh, it was really actually, uh, oddly enough, the uh, the crackdowns on the Occupy movements a couple summers ago that uh, I, really, I think really kind of thrust the police militarization into the national spotlight mm-hmm. and actually got... Uh, you know, some publishers interested, and uh, in fact, I didn't even. We had a couple of publishers come to my agent and ask for a book about this uh, oh, issue. Wow. So, um, it's been uh, it's been fascinating to watch. The uh, you know, it was, for a while, it was hard to get anybody to pay any attention to this issue, and I think there's we've really turned a corner. Um, reception of the book has been remarkable on both sides. You know, well, all sides, I guess, of the political spectrum. Uh, you know, I did. I was saying before, I did. Uh, Interviews last week with uh, Democracy Now! and uh, Glenn Beck in the same day, so hmm. I think that might be a record for ide- <laughs> biggest ideological span in so short a time. That's great. Uh, but, yeah, it's been, I mean, the reception, and, you know, and 
you know, at both extremes, it's been great. And actually in the middle, it's been great. You know, the Wall Street Journal's covered it, uh, re reviewed it very well. Um, Pacific Standard, um, I think there's a, even a positive review coming out in the Weekly Standard. Uh, so, uh, you know, people are uh, waking up and I think it's great. That's great. Yeah, that's great to hear. Uh, definitely an issue that strikes both sides' interests. Uh, in large part, it seems like when the federal government, uh, if it's a Democrat or Republican that's in power, they like to focus on driving up rhetoric and marginalization and uh, even crackdowns like we saw in the Occupy movement uh, against members of the other side of the aisle. Well, except for the Occupy movement, it was actually the Obama administration cracking down on what is seemingly a radical left movement. Uh, so tell us, what exactly do you mean whenever you describe a police officer as a warrior cop? Well, the, I mean, the general idea is that policing in America has been has evolved into uh, something that <clears throat> uh, I don't think the founders would recognize, and I don't, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't think is pr is consistent with the principles of uh, a free society. Um, you know, 100 to 150 day, times a day in this country, uh, you know, uh, employees of the government, uh, armed and dressed and trained like soldiers, force their way into private homes uh, to serve search warrants wow. for nonviolent consensual crimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was never, I mean, Congress you know, never had a vote to militarize the police. It's a trend that's been unfolding over a generation or so. Uh, and, you know, it's the result of uh, rhetoric from politicians. It's uh, the result of a lot of policies, some of which uh, intended some of this, some of which didn't, uh, but it happened anyway. Uh, so there's, but there was never a public discussion or public debate about, you know, whether and when this this type of force from the government is appropriate, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really, you know, what I was trying to foster uh, with the book was, a, you know, a discussion about, you know, when are when is this kind when are these kinds of tactics when is it appropriate for the government to use this kind of violence, mm -hmm. um, and so basically what we've seen over the last generation or so is an explosion in the use of SWAT teams from about 3,000, actually from about 300 per year in the 1970s to about 3,000 per year in the early 80s wow. to 50,000 per year uh, as of 2005. That number's probably a lot higher now. Um, but, you know, with that, you know, we've had we've seen this this transfer of military equipment from the Pentagon to local police agencies. We're talking about tanks, mm -hmm. uh, helicopters, APVs, um, bayonets. For some reason, police agencies love to get bayonets. Um, and... You know, again, there was no public debate, no public discussion about this uh, as, you know, the military has basically been arming domestic police agencies with weapons that were designed for use on a battlefield. And they're now being used on American streets and American neighborhoods and against mm -hmm. American citizens. And I think with all of that, uh, you've also seen a change in the mentality of a lot of police officers where, you know, they've been incessantly told for 35, 40 years now that they're fighting various wars. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been told that they're soldiers, you know, foot soldiers or troops. Uh, Bloomberg, uh, Michael Bloomberg, just a couple of years ago, referred to NYPD as the seventh largest army on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that is an effect on, on, a, on a cop's mindset and how he views the people that he, uh, the citizens he's supposed to be serving uh, and interacting with on a daily basis. Uh, at some point, you know, cops are incessantly told that they're, uh, jobs are, you know, extremely dangerous, even though the job has been getting safer. Uh, they're told that every day on the job could be their last. Uh, and eventually, you know, you get told that stuff often enough and you start to see people as potential threats and not mm. as citizens with rights. Uh, so I think it's a combination of things. The warrior, the rise of the warrior cop, it's the explosion of, uh, of SWAT teams in both number and use. It's the 
uh, continual rhetoric from public officials about war and, and, you know, the kind of martial terms and describing, you know, routine domestic law enforcement. Uh, and it's the mindset uh, that has taken over, I think, in too many police agencies in this country. Uh, I understand in your book you talk about the history of police departments and how that started in the United States. Can you give us a little background on that? Yeah, well, for the first, uh, well, let's see, uh, 45, 50 years of this country, we didn't have organized, centralized police departments. Uh, uh, criminal law was basically a private matter. You <clears throat> you would initiate a case against someone. you take it to a grand jury made up of your fellow citizens. Uh, if they chose to indict someone, uh, you know, you would then round up a uh, posse to bring that person to trial. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a sort of state imprimatur to the, to the proceedings uh, to make them, I guess, official. But, uh, you know, this idea of full-time prosecutors, full-time police officers was unheard of, really, until, uh, you know, the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, and it was really, you know, part of that was because, you know, at the time we lived in very close-knit communities where, mm-hmm. you know, people who... Uh, uh, everybody in the community uh, worshipped, you know, at the same altar. They had the same ethnic background, so they shared values and mores. And uh, so, you know, social pressure and shaming went a long way toward keeping public order. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was really, you know, when the country started urbanizing uh, and, you know, you start getting people living in close quarters who don't, you know, worship at the same place, who Mm -hmm. don't have the same ethnic background, uh, where you need, you start to need a set of laws to uh, keep public order, and then you need, you know, a, a force to in, enforce those laws. And this is where we really get the first organized, centralized police departments, starting in New York and Boston and Philadelphia. You know, but even then they were unarmed; uh, they did not wear uniforms, uh, and there was a lot of concern about, you know, whether we we need to make sure that these, you know, police agencies don't become the standing army that, you know, the, the founders feared and sure. that most liberty-loving people have feared uh, throughout the ages. Um, so policing for about the next hundred years basically turns into a patronage position. Um, police officers are appointed by ward bosses uh, in cities uh, who are working for the political machines, um, and you get a lot of corruption. Uh, you get, you know, in whatever majority ethnicity uh was in a ward, all the police officers would be of that ethnicity. So, you know, so if it was a majority Irish ward, all the cops would be Irish, Mm. uh, which didn't work out too well if you happen to be an Italian that lived in that ward. Uh, So there's a lot of ethnic violence and a lot of corruption. Uh, I'm I'm just going to sort of walk you through the history of policing, I guess. Uh, (laughs) So we get, and then we get into the progressive era uh, and you get two competing interests in the progressive era that want to rid law enforcement of this, this kind of corruption. Uh, on the one side, you get the the cultural progressives. These are the you know the the um, the temperance movement and uh, you know a lot of the kind of uh, religious based parts of the the progressive movement, uh, and they want policing to become basically a uh, uh, you know the um, what do they call them in Saudi Arabia the uh, uh, something like the committee to preserve virtue and abolish vice or something like that. Uh, they want, you know, they want police basically to enforce morality, particularly on immigrant groups. They want hmm. them to uh, crack down on alcohol, obscenity, prostitution. Um, the other, inter- the other competing interest within the progressive movement is uh, the administrators, police chiefs, and a lot of public officials who uh, didn't like the corruption that was going on and wanted to make law enforcement a more more of a profession. And the professionalists won. Uh, and basically, this is how we got police, the kind of hierarchical, um, you know, sort of paramilitary structure of mm-hmm. police agencies that we have today. 
Uh, and it's how we got, you know, we have hiring standards, we have uh, crime labs, that sort of thing. Uh, and that really dominates until uh, basically the, the mid-1960s. Uh, and the professional, pre- professionalism movement, you know, it had some virtues. It, it did rid a lot of departments of corruption. Uh, but it also had some problems. It, it isolated police officers from the communities that they served in. You know, it put them in squad cars so they hardly ever interacted with people unless there was, it was, you know, confrontation of some kind. Um, but it was really in the 1960s then that we get the, I, I would say, the, the birth of the militarization era. Uh, and it was in response to, you know, the civil unrest that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, the civil rights movement? Uh, well, the the the... The birth of the SWAT team, you can trace back to the Watts riots in 1965. Um, Daryl Gates, the uh, later LAPD uh, chief, was an inspector with LAPD at the time, and he was in charge of the department's reaction, uh, or how the the department was going to handle the riots. And, you know, the Watts riots were different than any riots we'd ever seen before. They were, they kind of flared up all over the city. Um, They were meticulously picking off police officers and firefighters as they would go to try to put out fires. Um... And Gates really likened it to a kind of guerrilla, urban guerrilla warfare. Uh, and he was concerned because LAPD didn't really have an adequate response to this kind of violence. Uh, so he got this idea that he would assemble this elite military team. Since this was urban guerrilla warfare, we needed to respond with a military-type force. So he had this idea of assembling with these teams that would be highly specialized, highly trained, um, and to, to respond quickly and overwhelmingly mm. to put down... Uh, these kinds of civil uprisings, and there are also there are there are a couple active uh, you know shooter situations that uh, Gates thought they were in that they that they didn't respond properly to. Uh, and what was interesting at the time is that uh, when he brought this idea of the, the first SWAT team uh, to uh, Chief Park William Parker, uh, who was you know one of the the key names in the professionalism movement, Parker actually said no. Uh, Parker said this idea treads too close to this traditional wall that we've had that separates police from the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't really until another police chief took over, uh, Redden, after Parker died, that Gates gets the green light to go ahead with this idea uh, of a SWAT team. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, after the civil unrest, uh, was the drug war the big catalyst for the next expansion? Well, so in the 1970s, you have a couple of trends going on, and they're and they're moving kind of parallel to each other. One of the, one is the the rise of the SWAT team, and so Gates forms the SWAT team. There's a couple high profile raids, one on the Black Panthers, one on the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, that are highly publicized and really kind of inject the idea of the SWAT team into the the, the national pop culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, there are a couple of other events, and one of them, since we're in Austin, it's worth bringing up, was the Texas uh, clock tower shootings. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Ch- from Charles Whitman, uh, and what that did really, it was in 1966, and what those shootings really did, I mean, until then, you know, a lot of middle-class America, white America, basically, uh, you know, were, was watching uh, these riots in the cities going on on their televisions, um, but, you know, they could separate themselves from it. They could say these are basically black people rioting in urban areas, you know, we're safe in the suburbs, mm-hmm. and I think what the Whit- Whitman's rampage really did was it it ma- it brought crime very close to middle the middle class. Um, you know, the the kids that were dropping uh, on the UT campus could have been anybody's kids, mm-hmm. uh, and it really kind of made white America, middle class America, uh, confront crime uh, for the first time, and really you know unspeakable, horrible, awful crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really it it it, it uh, you see the public opinion about crime shift pretty dramatically. 
uh, in the mid to late 60s where it becomes the number one domestic issue. Uh, and it's really how, how Nixon gets elected in 1968 by exploiting uh, these these middle class fears of crime. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing is he, so Nixon declares war on drugs in, in 1971, 1972. Uh, but, you know, when he runs in 68 on this anti-crime platform. And one of the, uh, one of the issues that he runs on is this idea of a, a no-knock raid. And the fascinating thing I found in researching the book is that the no-knock raid, uh, it was not something that police chiefs were demanding. It wasn't something that criminologists were saying, you know, police departments need. Uh, it was actually the brainchild of a 28-year-old Senate staffer who was trying to come up with uh, basically wedge issues for the campaign hmm. to make Nixon look tough on crime and, again, to appeal, appeal to the silent majority. Uh, so the no-knock raid, which is so ubiquitous today, uh, and which police departments insist, you know, is essential, uh, was, you know, it was basically a, it was an idea for a political campaign. Uh, it had nothing to do with, uh, you know, criminal justice uh, needs at the time. Um, so Nixon gets the no-knock raid passed. We see, we start to see, well, he gets two bills passed. One it applies to federal narcotics investigations across the country, so any federal investigation. And then another one just that just applies to Washington, D.C., because the federal government has jurisdiction over D.C. So the idea was that they would use D.C. as a model city and impose Nixon's crime policies on D.C. <laughs> uh, and the fascinating thing is that uh, the police chief at the time, who I interviewed for the book, uh, Jerry Wilson, uh, refused to use the no-knock raid. He mm-hmm. said it was unnecessary, it was intrusive, uh, he didn't see the need in you know, breaking down people's doors in order mm-hmm. to preserve a drug conviction. Uh, and an interesting thing happens, he, he refuses to implement it. Crime actually goes down in D.C. as it's going up in the rest of the country. And Nixon's people, uh, you know, they, they sort of take credit for crime <laughs> going down in D.C., even nice. though... Uh, the police chief there, you know, actively refused to implement Nixon's policies. Um, so, w- but what we see over the next 10 years throughout the 70s is these two trends. So SWATs spreading across the country to, you know, by 1975, basically every big city in the country had a SWAT team. The drug war is moving along, um, but these no-knock raids are being carried out basically by narcotics agents in street clothes, not, not SWAT teams. Mm. Um, so you have these two trends moving. Uh, eventually, a bunch of these narcotics agents start raiding the wrong house. There's a lot of um, uh, highly publicized incidents where people are getting terrorized by these drug agents. They're raiding houses without warrants. And Congress actually does a fascinating thing. They hold hearings and they bring victims in to testify. And they actually repealed both of the no-knock laws, um, which I found just it just kind of blew my mind when I found that in my research where there was actually a time in uh, our history where Congress was capable of some shame and, uh, you know, some remorse and reflection and was a- they're actually able to admit they were wrong and repeal a drug law that they had passed. Um, but again, so the SWAT teams, though, are, are, are mostly used in these emergency type situations, you know, hostage takings or bank robberies or active shooter situations. Um, the, so the, the two trends are moving parallel, and it really isn't until the Reagan administration that we see them converge. Uh, and and Reagan really you know militarizes the war on drugs, and this is where we start to see SWAT teams used uh, primarily to serve drug warrants, uh, and you know that's obviously the trend has continued uh, uh, through today. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, and then the war on terror comes along and really dramatically expands everything. Uh, yep. Department of Homeland Security, a lot of the grant funding and giveaways. Uh, I understand you got to get going. Let me ask you one more question. Uh, I, the book seems. I haven't read the book. I've read parts of it, but it seems to paint a pretty grim picture on the, the state of policing in America. Do you see any trends towards 
uh, more peaceful interaction with law enforcement or anything happening? I know there's growing movements that are filming the police and demanding accountability. With all of this militarization and violence and coercion coming from the police, do do you see anything that's pointing towards perhaps a light at the end of the tunnel and and a shift back towards a more free society? Um, You know, I do. I I mean, I think politicians are woefully behind on this issue, and as Congress usually is. Um, But I I will say, I mean, I've been writing about this for about six or seven years now, and I've noticed a really a a a perceptible shift in in how the public views these uh, these raids and the use of this kind of force. I tell you, when I used to write about it, um, you know, you'd read a uh, a local news account of some raid gone wrong. And the comments section would always be overwhelmingly pro-police. You know, mm-hmm. these people must have been done something wrong, or the cops wouldn't be there. But you know, uh, you know, these are this is just a these are you know a criminal class of people, or they mm-hmm. shouldn't have lived in this neighborhood if they didn't want this to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, in the last few years, um, it's moved overwhelmingly to anti uh, well, not anti-police, but anti these kinds of tactics. Um, you know, now you read about a raid, a hev- you know, a heavily armed raid for pot. And the comments are overwhelmingly, you know, what the hell's going on? Why Why are we using this kind of violence for marijuana? Uh, so I think the public is moving. I think the, as the public becomes more aware of what's actually going on, um, I think they become outraged. I think part of it's just raising awareness. I don't think people really realize how violent and how often these raids for, mm-hmm. you know, nonviolent crimes actually occur. Um, and, it, uh, you know, you mentioned the videotaping of police, I mean, or recording of police. Um, I mean, this is... It's hard to—you can't really overstate how powerful this weapon is. I think it was Judge Napolitano who said that the the cell phone is the new gun. Um, you know, I mean, do you remember during the Arab Spring, I mean, totalitarian governments have been cracking down on dissent since, you know, the, the dawn of civilization, basically. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in history, really, uh, during the Arab Spring, we were seeing, uh, you know, real-time video— and audio and uh, images of these crackdowns as they were happening. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was happening over here, over there. Over here, meanwhile, people are starting to tape, you know, record police, and we're getting images of and video of cops, you know, cracking down on people trying to record them. Uh, and because you can now stream, you know, t- uh, live stream to offsite servers, mm-hmm. uh, so there's always a copy of the video somewhere other than on the phone, you actually then get video of the police trying to destroy the video. Um, and that's, I mean, that is extremely powerful. Um, you know, when a, it used to be when a police officer would, his story would contradict yours, obviously his, his word was gold. Yep. Uh, and that was true even if it contradicted five or six or seven witnesses. When you have a video uh, that directly contradicts the police report, um, the police department has to do something. Like, you know, sometimes they've probably, I would say they haven't, done nearly enough and it's more of kind of a show investigation but there have been lots of instances where they have actually held cops accountable for lying in these police reports you know when it's revealed by video um carlos miller is going to talk at the uh, at the summit tomorrow uh, you know can give you specific cases where that's happened but it, you know dozens of times it's happened uh so you know technology i think is empowering us uh to hold government accountable and bring some transparency to government really like no time before in mm-hmm. human history uh it's really pretty remarkable uh and it's something we need to guard against a little bit i mean there's there's some emerging technology out there where police would conceivably be able to say block black out cell phones at protests or um and you know we need to make sure that that technology is not used or utilized um but you know i think we're seeing a lot of state legislatures are starting to pass laws protecting this right. Uh, the Obama administration, I mean, the Department of Justice, one of the few areas where they've been really, really good is, 
you know, they've actually filed briefs in some of these cases saying that there is a First Amendment right to record on-duty police officers, which is you know, kind of a, a pretty amazing thing to see from uh, a presidential administration to kind of go out of its way uh, to to make that opinion known in a, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, a, a, a kind of low-level federal case. So, you know, I think there are there is reason for hope. Um, the book is pretty cynical. Um and, you know, I don't, uh, you know, the problem really with with reform or getting any real reform off the ground is that you got to get politicians on board. And, you know, uh, a politician, you know, even a public opinion poll start to show that people overwhelmingly want this reform or this reform or this reform. A politician is not going to take a position that looks anti-cop unless it becomes a political liability for him not to do so. Mm. Uh, so it's not enough just to get people to change their minds. We, you have to get to the point where actually it becomes a political liability for for a politician not to do the right thing. So I think we're a little ways away from that. But I, you know, I'd really like to, I, you know I think the libertarian movement needs to get more active in terms of you know making sure there's a political price to be paid when these pol- politicians, sheriffs, prosecutors, you know, when they abuse their power and abuse their discretion, um, you know, there need they it needs to be known that uh, you know there's going to be money coming to their opponent in the next election or mm-hmm. uh, they, they need to understand that, uh, um, you know, it used to be that you could err on the side of abusing power because everybody wanted our, our law enforcement to be tougher on crime. Um, you know, I think we need to shift it so that they need to err on the side of, of using discretion. Um, so that I think is really kind of where we need to be headed. Right on. Yeah, and I think your book's going to do a great job to help shift that uh, public uh, culture and consciousness and discourse Hope so. uh, towards the, the way of being skeptical of police power, especially overreaching police power. Well, I appreciate you coming and stopping by to chat with us and look forward to your speech tomorrow at the Police Accountability Summit. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot, Radley. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. That was Radley Balco, author of Rise of the Warrior Cop. He'll be speaking tomorrow, uh, one of the headliners of the Police Accountability Summit, August 17th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Hope everyone in this room will certainly be there. Uh, it's going to be a great event. And uh, big ups to uh, Antonio Beeler and Kat and all the other people that helped to organize it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and later on we'll be hearing from more Peaceful Streets activists and other folks that are going to be stopping by throughout the evening that are participating in the Police Accountability Summit tomorrow. Peace and freedom. <laughs>